You're listening to Hebrews to Revelation, Lesson 6. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. Gifts received from supporters like you help us continue this exciting work. Please partner with us so that millions all over the world can continue to receive and share in the life-changing message of the gospel. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage. That's worldwide-classroom.com. Thanks for your support. Lord, we come before you uh, this evening and ask that uh, tonight you would be pleased to enlighten us, that we might taste of the goodness of your word, that we might even understand and better participate in the life of the Spirit, the powers of the age to come, that as we taste these things, we would not uh, neglect them or make light of them, but treasure them, that we might be strong. Lord, we know that, that any strength we have is not our own, but it is a strength that we may have through Christ, who is our great high priest. Lord, you are in heaven, and you hear our prayers and our cries. You empathize with us as we cry, because you too, yourself, even cried out with loud tears, with lamentations, and you were heard. Lord, may we have the confidence that uh, whatever prayer we lift up to you will be heard. Whether we cry or whether we rejoice, Lord, we ask just now that whatever our situation in life may be, that we would grow closer to you and better equipped to serve you by our meditations upon the supremacy of Christ our Lord. In whose name we pray, amen. Last week, we were meditating toward the end of class on Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 18, especially Jesus, our empathetic hero. We saw, among other things, that Jesus is the one who fulfills the true destiny of mankind. We saw, from Hebrews chapter 2, that God has an interest in humanity and that interest was expressed way back at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1 and Hebrew, and in Psalm 8. Uh, God has an interest in humanity because he, has, he is mindful of us, because we're just a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. Nothing is not subject to us. We saw that that uh, stirring affirmation about mankind, however, is not perfectly realized. In fact, it's, at times it seems as though it's hardly realized at all. And that in truth, that is our destiny only in Christ. Only in Christ will we taste of that greatness that is supposed to be ours. He is, we said in the last while, our hero. Uh, we don't see the glory that we aspire to, but we do see Jesus, who is crowned with glory and honor. He is the one whom we observe. He shared in our humanity, in our humiliation, and with him, we come to glory. He defeated our great enemy, our great adversary, even the devil. That's where we left off last time. And what I'd like to do is think about or meditate on three principles uh, that come from that that have bearing on Christian theology and on Christian life. Now, the first of them is just a thought back to chapter 2, verse 10, uh, really to answer a question a lot of people have. They say, now, wait a minute, 2.10 in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God should make the author, the pioneer, the hero of our salvation perfect through suffering. Now, what does that mean, that Jesus 
was made perfect. Uh, I thought Jesus was already perfect. Is, are you trying to say that there was something wrong? Is, is Hebrews saying there's something wrong with Jesus? Or is Hebrews saying perhaps that there is some uh, deficiency that needs to be remedied? Maybe he sinned or maybe he was imperfect. Uh, I want to say no. In fact, that word, uh, he may, was made perfect through suffering, that word for perfect in the Bible actually has two meanings. The root behind the two meanings is the idea of, of something going to its end, going to its goal, going to its purpose in life. Now, to go to your goal or purpose can have two sides to it. It can relate to your moral nature, and that's why it says make perfect. We think then, you know, making perfect is being without sin. But it also refers to uh, being consecrated so that you can fulfill your task. That is to say, being made perfect means going to the end of your work. And that's the sense that's being used here. In fact, uh, the idea of the, the word is teleao, from which we get the word telos and teleology, the study of the ends of things. That word is used about 25 times in a, a document called the Septuagint, which is a translation of the Old Testament from the Hebrew into Greek. It's where a lot of the vocabulary of the New Testament comes from. And in the Septuagint, Almost half the time, that word teleao means to consecrate, specifically to consecrate a priest for service. So that Aaron, for example, in chapter 29 of Exodus, verses 4, uh, four through 9, Aaron is, it's, it's commanded by Moses, you shall consecrate or perfect, take to his end, Aaron's hands and the hands of his sons. That is to say, consecrate Aaron and his sons, consecrate their hands for the task of their high priestly ministry. It says that about, that kind of use is found about ten times. The idea then is this, not that there's something wrong with Jesus, but rather that Jesus is consecrated for his high priestly ministry by suffering. And that leads immediately to the next meditation on Hebrews chapter 10, chapter 2 rather, verses 10 and following, and that is the implication for the life of the Christian for the suffering that Christians endure. You see, if it's true that Jesus is consecrated or made perfect through suffering, if it is true that Jesus, chapter 2, verse 9, had to taste death for us all, if even Jesus, who was still chapter 2, verse 9, who was crowned with glory and honor, if even he had to suffer, then how can we dream that we will be free from suffering? Now, I say we. Of course, the author is speaking, first of all, to his audience. You Hebrews, you would like to escape the suffering that's coming your way. But listen, even Jesus didn't do that. Even Jesus, to be fully consecrated for God's service, had to suffer. So surely you need to be prepared to face suffering as well, don't you? Especially since... It is made so clear in chapter 2, verses 11, 12, and 13, that we're of the same family as Jesus is. We are his brothers, it says in chapter 2, verse 11. It says uh, in chapter 2, verse 13, that we're his sons. Um, in bringing, uh, we're the same family. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers. Verse 11, verse 13, he says we're his children. You know, if Jesus is our big brother, and our big brother had to suffer then maybe we should expect to suffer. Isn't it true? How many of you here are younger brothers, younger sisters? 
Uh, didn't you tend somewhat, most of you, didn't most of us tend somewhat to follow in the path? I know we resisted, right? I have an older brother, too. You know, we resisted, but the truth is my older brother played Little League Baseball and I played Little League Baseball. You know, it just kind of, and, you know, we took a lot of the same classes and a lot of the same teachers. Went, even went to the same college. That's the way it is with younger brothers and younger sisters so very often. Uh, and so if Jesus, our big brother, member, head of our family, had to suffer, how can we imagine that he should too? In fact, it says in verses 14 and 15 that he partook of our flesh and blood so that by partaking he might nullify the one who has the power of death. How? By suffering. But then by doing that, he set us free from the power of death. And that's the point too. You'll suffer. Jesus suffered. You will too. But Jesus defeated Satan. And broke the power of death and broke the fear of death. Therefore, the fear of death should be broken for you too. You should be willing to face suffering. The third thing uh, is that Jesus uh, becomes, or Jesus is, our hero. That word, back to chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus our hero, Jesus our trailblazer, is something I would like to meditate upon a little bit. Would you agree with me that we have lost our sense of the heroic in the West? Yes. In philosophy, the death of transcendence means the death of transcendent values. We are, in the words of Bertrand Russell, merely an accidental collocation of atoms. How can an accidental collocation of atoms, a complex arrangement of protein chains, how can that possibly have heroism in it? can't be. It vitiates even the idea that we can conceive of somebody as heroic. Classical psychology tells us that almost everything anybody does that's grand or great or noble is somehow a result of suppressed desires. You know why Leonardo da Vinci was so busy with his inventions and with his painting and with his political uh, life as well, don't you? It was, it was suppressed homosexuality. There's no doubt about it. So say the Freudians. I mean, they really have said that. Behaviorism reduces everything to some kind of a quest for reward. Mother Teresa, don't you know, was not really altruistic. She didn't really care about the people who lived in the slums, the poorest of the poor living in India. She really was in it for the sense of wholeness that she received, the sense of gratification, the sense of significance. And then, of course, she became famous as she did it for her identity. The economists will come by and tell you that almost everything we do, and of course there's an element of truth in this, that's why it's so dangerous, almost everything we do has some hope of a reward in the West, even if you do something for free, well, you know, maybe somebody will do something back for you. But there's a good chance that somehow it'll look good on your resume, right? And that's really why we do everything. So every sacrifice can be explained away in cynicism rules. Of course, we still have heroes, don't we? They are one-dimensional heroes. We have uh, mighty men at throwing footballs and dunking basketballs and throwing fastballs and hitting home runs and, and uh, slapping a hockey puck at 100 miles an hour and so forth. Those are our heroes. Uh, but don't look too closely because after they're done passing or throwing or running, they have no more of a clue as to how to live than you do. 
Charles Barkley, fine basketball player, a number of years ago, said one very good thing, one very true thing. I am not a role model. He was right. He was right on that score. He may be a role model for how to rebound, but he spoke for athletics in general those years ago when he said that. We have other heroes, of course, too. We have uh, mighty men at the guitar, mighty men singing, acting, dancing, whatever the case may be. We have our heroes, but after you pin them up on the wall, don't look too closely at the rest of their life, okay? That's heroism today. I want to say that the Bible believes, the Bible asserts that heroism is important. You know that 28 times in the New Testament alone, 28 times, the command is given to imitate someone. Of those 28, 11 are God, the Father, or God, the Son, Jesus Christ. 17 times, most of them directed to the Apostle Paul, 17 times we are urged to imitate or to model ourselves after some human. 17 times. And the Bible wants us to recapture this idea that there are heroes, there is something to imitate, a vision of excellence, of maturity, that captures the imagination, that makes us say, I want to be like that. A model that induces admiration or inspires us somehow. Uh, sometimes, for adults, but especially maybe uh, I'll, I'll speak to those of us who work with teenagers and so forth, it is easy to think and to act as if being a Christian or serving the Lord is a matter of keeping certain rules, doing certain things, or not doing certain things. I cannot forget the time a while ago that I was speaking to a, a group of leaders of a youth group at a fine, wonderful, orthodox, reformed church with excellent teaching, and I wanted to see what they'd say. And so I asked them, how many of you think, this is now mostly 16 to 19-year-olds with a few 22-year-olds who are helping out with the group, how many of you think of the Christian life as essentially a matter of, of certain things you don't do that your non-Christian peers do? You know, drinking, smoking, sex, drugs, it's nasty movies, pornography, and so on. How many say the, that's basically the first thing that comes to your mind? Eighty percent of them raise their hands. That's essentially how they view the Christian life. It is not doing what everybody else does. And all I can say is that's sad. Because the Christian life is, is vastly more than what you don't do. Maybe a few other things like, you know, choose good friends. It's very easy at that age and later on when you're older adults to think, if I do certain things, I will please God. God will be on my side. If I just keep the rules and follow them, then I am living a Christian life. That's essentially an alternate form of legalism. One form of legalism says you're saved by keeping the law. But the other form is you sort of keep God's favor by keeping the law, by observing the law. Now, how do you do that? How do you get away from that idea? Well, you turn to other metaphors for the Christian life. Christian life is not just obedience to the law. It's also bearing fruit, right? And it's also you know, fruit of the Spirit. It's also, uh, Jesus says, it's like having a well of water springing up to eternal life. It's like a source just pouring out of you. That's your life. It's like an un, unstoppable well. It is, um, it's not a matter of, of external regulations. It is a matter of God's life in us. That's one way we can counteract legalism. But another way to counteract legalism 
is to have heroes, to have a vision of greatness, a vision of grandeur, and to let these images of greatness enter our mind. Now, I will tell you, you have to choose wisely. My number one hero in my Christian life uh, became my hero when he was 62, and I was probably 32. He was, at that time, about five foot ten and maybe 135 pounds. He had had cancer twice, and the first time he'd had cancer, it sort of fried all of his hair. So he had just a little bit of hair, and it was you know, just kind of these white, curly, straggly things. It was, he didn't have great hair. And, uh, and he had cancer of the throat once, and he didn't have a great voice. Actually, the truth is he'd never had a great voice in him before, but, but the chemotherapy made his, his already not great voice kind of raspy and and he would run, you know, it would get weak, and his pronunciation was a little bit odd, and he, he was kind of stooped a little bit. I'm not sure exactly why that was, but he was my hero, and he was my hero because of, of not because of what he looked like or sounded like, but because of, of what he was. Uh, he was a extremely intelligent and hardworking man. He was devastatingly witty. I love that. Uh, he was also a very, very good listener. But he was also a very good speaker. Not many people can combine the two. He was very good with people. He didn't speak much. Uh, he was on the faculty at college where I taught. He would speak at faculty meetings maybe once a month. But when he did, everybody listened. Because you knew that he would have weighed his words and he would be ready to speak on a matter of importance, not just you know, showing off his knowledge or something, but matters of importance with serious arguments arranged for the right end. I also taught with him a course, a Bible survey course, with 300 students in it. And it was uh, at a Christian college, but you didn't have to be a real-life Christian to attend. Most people were Christians, but, you know, you could, you could come there anyway, even if you weren't a Christian. And for reasons you might be able to guess, the basketball and baseball teams, don't ask me why, but uh, volleyball and, ba- uh, sorry, volleyball, basketball, and tennis were untouched. But football and baseball were sort of the... You know, the, the dens of apostasy or something. Uh, you know, they weren't really apostates, you understand. They were, you know, they believed God existed. That, that's, that's what they were. And, and the word got around among them that somehow that it's impossible, especially if you're a baseball player, it is impossible to get Doriani and McMillan to give you an A. No matter what happens, there has never been a baseball player who got an A, and if you earn an A, you will not get it. That was the rumor that went around for a couple of years. And so sometimes these fellows would come by and gripe. You know, 300 grades, you're going to have people complaining about their grades, especially if they think it's impossible to get an A. And they'd come to me, and I'd, you know, sometimes have medium success, sometimes poor. But I noticed that when, went, when they went to McMillan's office, no matter how grumpy and stamping down the hallway and bum, 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 knocking on the door and you'd hear their loud, angry voices, no matter how it started, when the door opened, whether five minutes or 25 minutes later, it was always, oh, laughing and cheerful and, oh, yes, Dr. McMillan, I see why you gave me a D minus. It was so nice of you to give me a D minus, you know. And, I mean, every last person who entered angry exited as his friend. I mean... It was so impressive that I actually, after noticing this happen many times, I actually uh, put my chair 
by my door, just kind of opened the door a crack and sat there and said, would you please leave your door open sometime so I can see what you're doing so I can do the same thing because he was so superb. I really could go on and on about my friend, but he was, a, he was my hero. Is a model of greatness. And in, in important ways, I tried to model myself after him. That's the concept of the heroic. And, and this idea of heroism helps us form our identity as Christians because it addresses a problem. And now I need my assistant with the lights. Uh, it addresses a problem that we often neglect in the Christian life. I'll hope that these... Uh, Oh, my. I used, uh, shall I, fancy colors would be saying far too much about this. I'm trying to decide. There's something that isn't right right now. Maybe that's it. No, that's not it. Oh, we'll see how this works. Let me talk a little bit, and I'll see if if anything. Oh, hey, good. It's working already. Excellent. Um, We'll get to those in a minute, though, all right? The concept or the quest for heroism addresses a problem that we, don't, that we don't think about very much as Christians. That is the problem of shame. And again, if I can think of high school, that would especially be a large issue for kids in school. Heroism addresses the problem of shame, which is different from the problem of guilt. Because we can be ashamed of things for which there is no guilt. Can you think of that? For example, if you're teenagers, if your body... Or your face, you know, with its blemishes. If your hair, if your voice lack dignity, lack excellence, if you don't have beauty, if you don't look cool, and so forth, you can be ashamed of that even though there's no sin involved with it, right? So the problem is shame. If we have less money than our friends and our clothes aren't as nice as the clothes of our friends, we can be ashamed of that. If we have a bad car, you can be ashamed. Have you ever been ashamed of a car? I once had a car when I was a professional, mind you, as a professional. Not in, I wasn't in college. I once had a car that had a rust hole so big that I lost my snow scraper through the floor of the car. And that is not a joke. My friends would not allow me to transport their pets in my car. They're afraid they'd just fall through. I didn't have money for another car, and I was, I was ashamed of my car. There was no sin involved. I hadn't squandered my money on the lottery or something. I just didn't have enough money to buy another car. If you don't have skill, you could be ashamed of that. If you have uh, what? You know, if you, if you can't fix a simple problem mechanically, or you don't know your way around with a computer, or you can't catch a ball or throw a ball properly... You can be ashamed of that, even though it is not a moral category. Shame comes from a lack of heroism. And the cure for shame is to be great, is to be excellent, it is to be grand. That is the cure. Now, we have the idea that, in our circles, that the biggest problem here is a violation of moral rules. See, what I'm saying is the issue of heroism has to do with having models of greatness. We're stuck as Christians over in the realm of rules and morals. And we say, rightly, that Christ solves the problem, Jesus solves the problem of our guilt, of our 
violation of the moral law. That's absolutely true. And we say that the cure to the problem of guilt, violation of law, is gaining righteousness. And we say, absolutely correctly again, that we gain that righteousness through the work of Christ as a gift by faith. But that's not all the Bible says. I want to turn, have you think of a key passage. Or the, I was going to say turn, but you know it very well. It's Romans chapter 3, verses, verse 21. It says simply, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, you may not realize this, but this actually is addressing both problems. All have sinned is the violation of the moral law. It makes us guilty. We need to be righteous. But all have fallen short is the problem of not being great. We fell short of the glory of God. Back to chapter 2, verses 8 and following. The teaching is that we were meant to rule the world for God. And if we don't, we have fallen short of glory. We're not supposed to be good only. We are supposed to be good. We're not just supposed to be good, though. We're also supposed to be glorious. And when we fall short of that, we have a sense of shame. Then... Missing or violating God's standards, the problem of sin, the result is guilt. It needs to be solved by the righteousness of Christ. The second problem is lack of glory. And that is solved not by Jesus dying for our sins, but by Jesus giving us glory. Now, how do we get glory? The, uh, the solution to the problem of shame is twofold. The one solution that's already mentioned in this passage is... To know that we're accepted. To know that we belong. Jesus, to know we're loved. You see, even if you're relatively inept in sports, if somebody is willing to say, I'll take him on my team, that removes the shame, doesn't it? The shame of not being picked. Oh, no. You don't mean we have to have Joey on our team, do you? Well, when somebody else says, hey, we want Joey, that removes Joey's shame. And Jesus says, chapter 2, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He is calling us into his family. I think it's really you know, so excellent and beautiful, just right, that Hebrews chooses this family metaphor because it's exactly with regard to our family that it's easy to be ashamed. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. But you, probably everybody here has somebody in their family that they're ashamed of or they were ashamed of. There's probably somebody in your family that went to jail or has bad teeth or bad manners or bad breath or something. And even if it's not true now, you remember having a little brother or sister who was a complete jerk and hung around and embarrassed you in front of your friends, right? Jesus says, I'm not ashamed to welcome you into my family. I'm not ashamed to give you my world to govern it. So that we possess greatness, first, by great family, second, by being remade in the image of God, by being made like Jesus, and, and by governing the world for him, by being faithful, even, to go back later in the book of Hebrews to chapter 11, even as the heroes of the faith were faithful, that gave them glory, and us as well. At a minimum, if we look to Jesus as our hero, I said two things, we look to fellow Christians as our heroes, right? To get a vision of moral excellence. Back to my theme again. Christian life is not just following the rules. It is greatness. It is having a vision that transcends. It is having a concept 
of, of ruling the world for God, of accomplishing great things, of being noble and virtuous. We look to fellow humans who are noble in some way or other. We also look, of course, much more to the Lord. You may say, well, how can the Lord be my hero? How can I model him? You can, you can have the Lord as your hero, as your model, not in his being, not in his eternal power, not in his sacrifice for sins, but in his manner with, with us and with the world. Uh, so that, again, his, his willingness to accept us, his boldness, his style, his courage. I mean, you know, he, Jesus had a way of life that was, that was exciting. And he never shirked the difficult questions. He was always willing to, you know, to go to combat against his adversaries. He was willing to fight the strong. But he was also willing to identify with the weak. He had friends, you know, rich and poor, slave and free, in castes and outcasts, rich Pharisees and, and uh, you know, poor beggars and in between tax collectors. Jesus had greatness. I'm mentioning this. I'm meditating on this because I believe this is a portion of the Christian life that is very, very widely, in fact, indeed, almost totally ignored. We're so stuck on the rules, being a Christian means keeping the rules, and violation of the rules, and how Jesus saves us from violation of the rules, that's absolutely true and absolutely important. In fact, it's the most important thing, but it's not the only important thing. It's also important to realize that we're created for glory, and that Jesus would lead us to glory. We have a need for that. We have a desire for that. There is a thing such as shame that comes from lacking glory, and there is a cure in Christ. Hebrews chapter 3 takes up uh, some theology and some reflections on Christ, and now begins to uh, turn them more clearly, more uh, explicitly to the temptation in the, that's facing the church right at this time. The manner, you will see, of Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 is sometimes very rough, sometimes very pastoral. And not only can we learn the content of what the author says, we can also learn something about methods of dealing with people as we look through Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. Now, chapter 3 really begins, truth is, at chapter 2, verse 17, and chapter 2, verse 18, where the, where the writer sums up what he's been saying about Jesus with these words. Chapter 2, verse 17. For this reason, he, that's Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. And that wraps it up. And then chapter 3, verse 1 continues. Therefore, holy brothers who share in this heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Now, here's uh, the statement in chapter 2, verse 17, a very uh, pregnant remark in 2.17 where it says that Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. This little statement, Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest, actually outlines most of the rest of the book of Hebrews. The idea that Jesus is faithful is the main point of chapters 3 and 4, at least up to 4.14. 
The idea that he is merciful takes us from 4.15 to 5.10. The idea that he is a high priest covers chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. Six, chapter 6 is a kind of an interlude. And, and so then here's what he says about him. Jesus is our great high priest, and he says that he's our high priest for a purpose or for a reason. It was necessary for Jesus to be conformed to his brothers so that... He might be merciful and faithful toward God. That is to say, he had to be like us so he could fulfill his mission. Only a human can to participate in our life so as to redeem us. He had to be made like us. For the purpose, he goes on to say, of making atonement for sins of the people. Only a human being could stand as the representative for human beings before God. He had to be made like us. To represent us and to make atonement for our sins. He is merciful and he is faithful, became a man, and now sympathizes with us. Chapter 2, verse 18 says, Because he suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So these two things then, he suffered so he's able to empathize or sympathize with us. But not just that, he is also able to help. By his incarnation, two great things happened. He came to understand us, and he came to help us. To understand and to help. Compassion and action, both. Now, this great sort of uh, theme statement, chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 1 is going to be outlined. I'm going to ask you to follow along with me. I believe this is in your outline, so you can kind of just follow along with your eyes and see where it's going, because the next few chapters are kind of complex. It goes like this. Jesus, first of all, is a faithful one. He's a faithful high priest. He is faithful like Moses, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, and yet he's more faithful than Moses, as we'll see. Moses was faithful. Jesus is faithful. The next section, chapter 3, verse 7 through 19, says... Moses was faithful, but, you know, the Israelites did not respond well to Moses. Moses was faithful, but they weren't faithful to him. And God punished them. And that leads to a question. How about you? Will you be essentially like Moses? Will you also fail to be faithful to the one who is faithful to you, namely Jesus? A promise of rest remains. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 11 goes on to say... But it isn't just for anybody. It's only for those who persevere and don't harden their hearts. And beware, if you think you can harden your heart and hide it from God, nothing is hidden from God. Chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Now, that's harsh. But then he goes on to say, but wait, Jesus is also merciful. He's in heaven. He is interceding for us. He's a high priest. And one of the jobs of a high priest is to deal gently with people who sin, chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. He's a high priest after the order of, of Melchizedek. And as a high priest, he learned obedience and prayed and groaned. So again, he understands what we go through. He interceded for us and knows how we suffer and prayed for release from the same things. That's chapter 3, 4, and 5, just a very quick overview. Let's go back and look in a little more detail at Jesus, the description of Jesus in chapter 3. Chapter 3, one more time, begins with a command. The command is, 
Therefore, holy brothers, set your thoughts, ponder, consider Jesus. That little word, that word, set your thoughts, or ponder, or consider, is used, for example, is used a number of times in the Bible when we're supposed to pay attention to something and, and contemplate it. For example, it says in Romans chapter 4, around verse 18 through 20, that when the promise was given to Abraham that he would have a son, he considered, he pondered the fact that his body was as good as dead and, his, and the womb of his wife Sarah was as good as dead. In other words, you know, when he took a bath, he didn't close his eyes. He said, you know, I'm 100 years old and I'm just about dead, reproductively speaking. My wife, you know, she's just about dead too. And he didn't deny that. He considered it, but he also considered that the promise of God is greater. And so he continued to believe. That's one of the places where it's used. We're told to ponder ourselves in James as we look into the law of God. Look carefully. Don't just take a glance. Really take a look at yourself. So ponder Jesus. All right, what are we going to see when we ponder Jesus? Well, we're going to see he's an apostle and the high priest of our faith. He's the one who sent. Apostle means one who sent a commission. High priest, the whole book is about that, chapters 5 to 10. Uh, But first he ponders Jesus as... A, a supreme leader. Remember we've already seen last time the supremacy of Jesus to a couple things, right? Remember what they are? Last time we're together, Jesus is superior to the, to the angels, and before that, he's superior to the prophets. Now we're going to have another, and that is that Jesus is superior to Moses. Absolutely. And why Moses? Well, among other things, because Moses is one of the two greatest heroes of the Old Testament. The other would be Abraham. Abraham and Moses we consider the two great righteous men. Moses and Jesus have a lot in common. I'll run through them quickly. They were faithful to the one who appointed them. They were a mediator of a covenant. They led a generation out of the wilderness. Moses, the Exodus generation. Jesus, of course, uh, not just a generation, the Exodus generation, but Jesus led the church. Uh, they both received the revelation that set them apart from all others. Moses seeing God face to face. Jesus, of course, is God. Both were superior to angels. Both enacted a covenant where angels helped, but they were more important. But Jesus is superior to Moses in several ways. Chapter 3, verse 3, says, Whereas Moses was faithful in God's house, Jesus built God's house. Moses in the house, Jesus building the house. Chapter 3, verse 6 Moses was a servant in God's house, but Jesus is the son over God's house. And whereas we are God's house, whatever happened to Moses' house? One more. Jesus has been faithful. He fulfilled the promise of a faithful leader, but was Moses perfectly faithful? No, not perfectly. He wasn't. Some people ask, why are we getting into Moses here? kind of giving you a hint already. He's one of the great heroes of the Old Testament. But really what this is, is part and parcel of the theme that Jesus is superior, supreme overall. Superior, the new covenant is superior to the Mosaic covenant. That's the point he's making right now. Jesus is the final word of God. No word will be higher. Uh, He is, uh, the New Testament is greater than the law and the covenant of Moses. And the access to God is greater. Uh, Moses had unprecedented access to God. He met with God face to face. But we have more than that. Everybody has that access to God now. And so what he's doing is he's saying to these, these Jewish Christians who are thinking about returning to Judaism, don't do it. 
You've got what's supreme. There's nothing more that you could want than what you have. So Jesus was faithful. But how about you? Chapter 3, verses 7 to 18. He he says here in verse 7, Today, if you... uh, Let's go back to verse 6. Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are God's house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So Jesus was faithful, but how about you? Will you hold on? Jesus was faithful to us, but will we be faithful to him? Stick with family analogies today. Uh, how many of you here are a younger brother? How many of you have an older brother or sister here? Okay, the majority of you have an older brother or sister. Uh, could you count on your older brother or sister? By the way, I'll tell you in advance the answer is yes. Okay. Uh, could you count on your older brother or sister to come through for you in a time of need? Could you? How many of you could really? Okay, and the rest of you are willing to say, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt or something like that? Okay. Um, now, if, you know, if you're on the playground and it's a fair fight, right, between you and another kid your age, your brother's just going to kind of watch, right? But if a big, fat bully picked on you on the playground, then your brother would come in and help you or your sister, right? Or if you, know, if you were winning and then somebody else jumped in and it was all of a sudden three-on-one, then your brother would jump in and say, okay, at least it's three-on-two, right? You got used to the idea that your brother would be there for you and he'd be loyal to you. But one of the things that can strike younger brothers and sisters is they don't realize when they get a little bit older that the older brother or sister may need them. They were faithful to you. Will you be faithful to them? That's a life question. That's a question here. Jesus is faithful to you. Praise God. He was faithful. He finished the task. But are you faithful to him? That is the issue in chapter 3. Now, if you have your Bible open, you can see that chapter 3, verses 7 through about 11, are put in a script that indicates we have an Old Testament quotation. You see it there? You know where it's from. You see where it's from, the Old Testament quotation? It is from Psalm 95, right? Okay. Uh, now, what do you know about Psalm 95? Your book, the reading you did in Lane, tells you something about Psalm 95. You know what it was? How was Psalm 95 used in the synagogues in Jesus' day? Do you know? Do you remember? Yes? Call to worship. And what verses did they like to read? Turn to Psalm 95 for a second just to observe how it works. Psalm 95 would make a great call to worship. In fact, I've been thinking for a while that somebody should make Psalm 95 into a song. Because it kind of goes like this. Can't you just see this becoming a song? Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let, let us extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God. He is our God, the great king above the, all the gods. Uh, the sea is his. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are his, the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Wouldn't that make a great song? I know that. <laughs> that was a joke, see. Okay, that would make a great song. There is a song about that. Oh, dear. Well... It said that, verse 7, you know, verse 6, 7, and 8, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before him. And then it goes on in verse 7 and 8 to say this, uh, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at Massa uh, that day in the desert when your fathers tested and tried me. And what they're saying is, 
When you come to worship at the synagogue, this is a you know, very wise thing that they did. When you come to worship, to, to bow, to praise God as your shepherd, as your maker, as your God, good, praise him. But when you come and listen to the word, don't harden your heart. Don't praise him during the chorus time or the song time or the prayer time and then close your ears when the word is propounded to you. There's no profit in that. And what he's doing then is saying, you need to make use of what you hear. Consider the perils of unbelief. This little reference in Psalm 95 to Massa and Meribah, the time of testing in the desert. You know what that time is? You know the story of Massa and Meribah? Chapter 17 of Exodus, you can turn or not as you wish. But the people cross the Red Sea in chapters 13 and 14, and they sing a song about it in 15. Then by 17, they're out of water, and they said to Moses, we want water, we want water now, we demand water. And they tested God, saying, is the Lord among us or not? That is to say, Moses, we want water, we want water now, and if you don't give it to us, we don't even believe God is here, we'll go back to Egypt. Now, friends, that was not being faithful to God. That was not making use of the revelation that had been given to them. And and Hebrews wisely uses this from Psalm 95 as a a way of meditating on the perils of unbelief. When you you test God, the results are going to be poor. It's also, as Lane points out at some length, uh, a reference here to... uh, to Numbers chapters 13 and 14. There's the reference here to the fathers testing and trying and wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, God declared, it says verse 11, he, God swore on oath, they will never enter my rest. Uh, that, that statement, that swearing, you will never enter my rest, is the consequence of the rebellion of Israel, Kadesh Barnea. If you, I'll remind you the story. The people are ready to go into the promised land, right? And they send out 12 spies, right? 12 spies say it's a good land. It's indeed flowing with milk and honey. The crops are abundant. But what's the problem? There are giants there. Too big. We look like grasshoppers in their eyes. And that's how we felt in front of them. And so we can't take it. And so God said, go conquer. And they said, we can't do it. God said, okay, then don't go. They said, oh, well, maybe we will go. He said, no, you said you wouldn't go. You can't go. They said, no, we will go. He says, if you go, then you will get what you said because you rebelled. And they went anyway, and they were crushed. And twice uh, they were defeated because twice uh, they were unfaithful. Not that they lost in the battle twice. And then in chapter chapter 14 of Numbers, and I'll maybe ask you to turn with me to see this with your own eyes. God pronounces the the judgment on them in very strong terms. Numbers 14, 21 through 23 and 29 to 32 reads this way. The Lord said, I've forgiven you of this sin. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the earth, Not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. Not one of them who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. Then verse 29, in this desert your bodies will fall. Every one of you 
20 years old or more, who's counted in the census, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except for Caleb and Joshua. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land that you have rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in the desert. You said it. You said God wouldn't bring us in. Your punishment will be that your own words of unbelief will be true. And that's what he's alluding to. He's talking to this generation that saw all the work of God and made no use of it. And so he warns them about that. He says, look at verse, back to Hebrews, chapter 8 and chapter, chapter 3, verse 8 and 13 and 15. He keeps telling them over and over, don't harden your hearts the way that generation did. Don't harden your hearts. He says it a couple different ways. The first way he says it is through, I'm going to be technical here a little bit, a form of command, which is called a negative era subjunctive, and you don't have to know what that is. It is a Greek form, and it is a form that is a form of negative command that's, that specifies don't even start. It's spoken to those who are, um, who are maybe on the, on the verge of it, but haven't actually done it. He says, don't even start to harden your hearts. He's saying to this generation, don't. You have even a superior revelation to what that generation had. They had crossed the Red Sea, and they grumbled about that. They had manna falling from heaven every day, but you have something better. You have the redemption, the revelation that comes in Christ, is superior to all from the Old Covenant. So don't even start down this path. And then he says it again in verses 13 through 15. Don't harden your heart. Hardening your heart has two meanings in the Bible. Hardening your heart means, first of all, to be insensitive to the needs of your fellow man. For example, Jesus says that people get divorces. Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of the heart of the Israelites. You have to be, I don't mean this to judge anybody in this room. I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says. There is an element of hard-heartedness when you divorce your wife or your husband for any cause other than adultery and desertion. Because you're saying, well, you know, I really just care so much more about myself. I don't really care about your misery or your suffering or your loneliness or your financial need or your, you know, the, the, the shame or the isolation that will come as a result of this. I don't really care. I've got to get on with my own life. It's hard-hearted. You have to be hard towards others. That's one. Two, hard-heartedness means insensitivity to God, insensitivity to our fellow human but also insensitivity to God. Don't be, and of course here it's the second sense, don't be hard toward God. Soften your heart to Him. Respond to Him. His concern is really found verse by verse, and also then the cure. His concern is that they would fall away. You see chapter 3, I'm now in verse 12. He says, See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away. That word turn away can also mean fall away, to depart, to leave the faith. Put it to you this way. These folks are in danger of dying for their faith. There is nothing wrong with being afraid. But there is something wrong with running. I've never been in war, but I've talked to people who have and read enough stories you're afraid. The bravest man is afraid. And I see a couple of people nodding their heads at me. There is nothing wrong with being afraid. In fact, there's something wrong if you aren't afraid. You can die. 
But there is something wrong with letting the fear rule you so that you turn tail and run or won't fire a weapon or won't listen to the commands and so on. That is deadly. So it's one thing to be afraid, another to turn away from the living God. The remedy, that's his concern. His concern is that they fall away, that they refuse to believe. The remedy is, found in verse 13, so encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. Now, quiz question. What day is called today? What day do we call today? Today. There's another, let me ask you to put it another way. What day do you call today? Every day. Every day is a day we call today. You call that day today when you're in that day. Okay. So every day is called today, right? There's no day that's called tomorrow, not while you're in it. So he says, encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. So what's he saying? He's saying every day. And that will keep you from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, this bears meditation. What he's saying is that the cure to the desire to run is to encourage one another always. Sin can deceive you, he says. And what he's implying is that the danger that people give up the faith, not so much because they decide, today I will cease to be a Christian, but because they drift away. We talked about this last time. Because they drift away... And no one is there to encourage them back. The number one antidote to troubles of this sort is for the Christian body to love one another and encourage one another. That's the first thing. And if encouragement doesn't come naturally to you, get over it. Learn how to be an encourager. Now, by the way, encouragers don't say get over it, do they? But. So that proves to you that I have, I'm working on it, you know. We, some people just are full of, you know, you're the greatest and so forth, and other people just find it difficult to praise other people. But whether you find it difficult or easy is not really particularly germane. You're commanded to be an encourager. That will keep your brothers from falling into sin. So, verse 14, he says, We have become then partakers of Christ... We have been united with Christ, if indeed, if it's indeed true, that we hold firm to the initial insurance. Uh, I'm, I'm giving my own translation here. To the initial assurance, the assurance we had at the beginning, we have to hold on to the end. Here's how you know that you partake in Christ. If you have this initial sense, I belong to Christ, and then you hold on to it till the end, that's how you know that you really partake in Christ, that your life is in Him. And so he gives the conclusion again. So if you hear, verses 15 and 16, don't harden your hearts. That applies first to Moses' generation, but Hebrews is saying it applies just as much today. The covenant people are always going to be tested and tempted, and there will always be times when you can say, you know, I saw in the past what God did for me, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure today. Cross the Red Sea, chapter 13, 14, chapter 17, we want water, we want water now. March through the wilderness, have food fall from heaven, but we're not sure he can take us into the promised land. It's not just them, it's also us. We too can see what God did in the past 
and forget and say, but I think he's run out of providential loving care for me. That's the danger. Now, here, after a little bit of a, you know, a blended section, kind of warm at times, kind of direct at times, he then moves to a, a, a pretty harsh section. I want you to listen to chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 and 18. As he puts some questions to his listeners, he says, Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those whom Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? See how rough that is? Just kind of pounding them with questions. And then he adds, So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. And it seems like he's just about ready to say, so then you will not enter, doesn't it? With a series of questions. This is actually called, this is a rhetorical device that was used in antiquity called the diatribe. I don't know if you've heard the word diatribe, which basically means kind of a rant or something like that. Today, that's what it means. But in antiquity, a diatribe is a particular form of interaction between a teacher and his students. It's a rough it's a rough form, but it is also a form that was used between people who knew and trusted each other. And the idea was the teacher would pound his students with questions to which they should know the answer, shaming them into considering the truth. Who rebelled? Wasn't it every last one of them? With whom was it angry? Wasn't it those whom he killed, their bodies fell? Whom, to whom did he swear? Wasn't it those who didn't obey? Yes, it was. Chapter 4, verse 1, then draws the conclusion. Therefore, now here I have to tell you, as much as I usually like the NIV, what comes next is just plain shameless. The following translation. This is what it says in the NIV. I'm going to give you my own translation in a second. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. False. What it says is, in the Greek, Therefore, let us fear. It doesn't say be careful. It says fear. You can even hear it. The word is phobeomai. You know the word like phobia? You know? Right? That's the word. Therefore, let us fear, lest we, lest we also fall short of the rest. He goes on to say in the next couple of verses, there is, verse 2, there is a promise that remains, but the promise remains, the gospel is good, if you combine it with faith at the end of verse 2. You have to mix promises with faith. Promises by themselves will never save you. You have to add, it's like we're in baking now, right? You know, flour by itself is not going to give you any flour plus sugar plus cocoa. You've got to have yeast, and you've got to have butter, and you've got to have you know, all the other ingredients. You've got to mix promises with faith. Then you will find a blessing for yourself. Now, let me just give a little interlude here for a second. I, I said that it says in the original language, therefore let us fear, lest you fail to attain as they did, lest you fail to add faith to the promise and then fall short. How many of you have heard around here, around the seminary, elsewhere, that, that guilt and fear are not very good motivators. Some of you have heard that. Don't motivate people with guilt and fear. Right? I once actually was in a class. I mean, I was teaching a class. 
Sunday school class. And I said, you know, we shouldn't motivate people through guilt. Talked about that for a minute. From the back, somebody said, but what else is there? <laughs> and another person said from the other side, fear. I mean, that actually happened. But, um, you know, we have a sense that that's not quite Christian. That's sub-Christian somehow. Is there a place for using fear as a motivator in the Christian life? Quite well. Oh, Jonathan Edwards used it. How many of you think fear can be used as a motivator in the Christian life? Somebody said it depends. Depends on. It depends on the situation. Absolutely. It depends on how you use it. And what sense of fear? Very good. That's another comment. Absolutely. Um, let's let's let me do that a little bit. Let's distinguish different kinds of fear. There are theologians have said historically two kinds of fear. There is filial fear, and there is servile fear. Filial fear is probably a word you don't know as much. Servile fear means the fear of a servant, the fear of quivering in front of the master or the slave in front of the master, of wondering if he's going to be beaten or disapproved of and there's no love. You, just, you, know, you do your job in order to not get disapproval. That, of course, is not the kind of fear that Christians should have. But there is, there is a place for filial fear. Filial fear is, is, uh, is from the term uh, for one of the forms of love, and that is philia, that is the love of affection. And then filial fear would be affectionate fear. When you say, what's affectionate fear? Well, there is such a thing as affectionate fear. Uh, there is a place in the family for children to have an affectionate fear of their parents. That is to say, you know your parents love you, but you don't want to disappoint them. You're afraid of what they'll say when you do something wrong. Maybe afraid of punishment somewhat, but maybe more afraid of disappointing them, afraid of, of uh, letting them down. The book of Proverbs actually commends this repeatedly, right, doesn't it? The fear of the Lord, not being careful in front of the Lord, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is the sense that God is awesome. He's a judge. He's righteous. He's holy. Let me put it to you a different way. We said a minute ago that, that in war, it's, it's kind of good to be afraid. If you think about it, in other forms of, of combat, metaphorical forms of combat, there is fear. I mean, if you go into a test, you against the test, you know, there's a place for a little bit of fear, isn't there? And in fact, if you're not afraid of a test a little bit, you may do poorly, Right? And if you're going into athletic competition, another team is really, really good. Maybe they're bigger, faster, stronger, smarter, and better coached than you are. You should be a little bit afraid. And maybe having a little bit of fear of getting kicked would, would prepare you, you know, would motivate you to prepare for the contest. It's good to have some fear. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And that fear of God includes the idea that God is a judge. And as the judge, uh, he can indeed withdraw his pleasure and can indeed punish. As it says down here in verse 3, I declare on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest. So there is indeed a place for fear. Though the issue is that fear has to have a subordinate place. The dominant issue in a relationship, in any relationship that is strong and good, should not be fear. 
the place for awe, even a place sometimes for fear, the dominant note in our teaching and preaching and so forth should be the grace of God, the mercy of God. But the grace of God is not, is not shall we say, yeah, we've got to be careful here. In, in some ways, it's unlimited, but in other ways, it's not. It is not unlimited if you don't partake of it. You've got to partake if you want to be truly a recipient of God's grace and God's love. Now, then he goes ahead and adds, verses 3 to 11, uh, that there is indeed, if you do indeed mix faith uh, with the promises, there is a hope of rest. And he envisions four kinds of rest that are described here, or four kinds of rest in the Bible. Uh, one kind of rest is God's rest at the creation of the world. That's chapter 4, verse 3. Second rest is the weekly Sabbath rest, chapter 4, verse 4. Third kind of rest is rest in Canaan, which is a type of uh, the eternal rest. It was, a, it was rest given to Israel, waiting for more, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. And, of course, there is the eternal rest that we all have in Christ, chapter 4, verse 11. And he says, listen, there is a rest that God offers you, eternal rest, and also even a kind of a rest in this age, a rest rather like, somewhat like the Sabbath, somewhat like the rest Israel was promised in Canaan. God offers rest to his people if we don't harden our heart, if we turn him in faith. Well, let's uh, see if we can uh, come back to this section, recapitulate, but also move on to see the final word in the section. Uh, we've seen that the theme of chapters 4, 1 to 13, is that we should fear. He says, let us fear lest we fail to enter the rest by failing to listen to the word, by failing to add our faith to the promises of God. And lest we hear that word that they heard in verse 3, they will never enter my rest, which is repeated again in verse 5. Don't harden your hearts. He keeps saying that just over and over. And he keeps over and over promising that rest will come. Verse 11, for example, let us... Therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fail by following their example of disobedience. So be warned by the failure of Israel. Make an effort. If you, if you think, just I know I said this before, if you think that you can fool God and play at religion, that's what chapter 4, verses 11, 12 and 13 are about. If you think you can fool God, then you have to understand that's impossible. God's word is sharp, it's active, it penetrates even the dividing of soul and spirit. In other words, even things that we can't penetrate. Where does the soul end and the spirit begin? You know, some theologians used to try to debate that. But basically now, everybody realizes that's not what he means, like there's a place where soul ends and spirit begins. But rather, this even, even we can't discern the end of of you know, where the spirit is working in our life and where our own soul ends. We can't tell that. But God can. God's word can. He can see deep inside. Uh, he, his word penetrates us. It divides. It discriminates. Verse 12, it judges. It's, it's alive. It's a living thing. And yes, it's true that, that if we try to hide from God, that's impossible. Nothing uh, is hidden from him. and Everything is bare. And we have to give an account. We've lost. If we would try to, re to wrestle God, we'd lose. Absolutely so. But the point is not 
therefore expect God to wrestle you and beat you. The point is, no, make every effort. Examine yourself first. Lest God give you an examination that you don't want. Examine yourself first. Be hard on yourself. I can't help but think of a story I read in a biography of Ludwig Wittgenstein, who was one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century, and not a Christian. I will tell you, although he was intrigued by Christianity, not a Christian. He started off as a young man in his 20s as an elementary school teacher. And, you know, not only was he an elementary school teacher, but in just a a farming village. And to put it mildly, he was disappointed with the efforts and the products of his students. And he he didn't take to it well. In fact, he began to abuse his students verbally. He began to hit them. Uh, one girl, uh, you know, he pulled her hair so long that her hair began to, you know, come out. And, and uh, not surprisingly, he was dismissed. <laughs> he decided maybe he had another calling in life. He went into philosophy and was about a dozen years later appointed to the chair of philosophy of one of the great uh, universities of the day in the 1930s. Before he went to that chair, he decided that he needed to go back to that farming village and find every last student that he had been harsh or cruel or had struck or had pulled the hair. Because he understood that the acts, the disposition that allowed him to do that, even when he was 25, was still bound up with him. He was, he was hard on himself first. Now, I'm not saying he had a truly godly uh, repentance, but, but this, was, this much was a model. You, you be hard on yourself. You face your sin squarely. Repent of your sin. Turn to God sincerely, asking for grace, and it will be more than abundant. Which is the point of chapter 4, verses 14 and 16. As soon as he's done with a warning, he immediately moves on to the comfort. Jesus is, 2.17 says, a merciful and faithful high priest. This is the balance to chapter 4, verse 1, and verses 12 and 13. He's our great high priest. He's gone through to heaven. Why has he gone to heaven? He's gone to heaven to intercede for us so we can enter into his rest as we hold fast to our confession. And, and what kind of a high priest is he? Well, he is a high priest who is empathetic. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. That is to say, we do have one who can sympathize. Why can he sympathize? Because he's been tempted in every way as we are, yet he's without sin. So he, he's not just empathetic and loving, but he also delivers us. And as a result, when we approach his throne of grace, we do so, verse 16 says, with confidence. This is all within the context of holding fast in the faith. Not being perfect, mind you. Not keeping all the rules, but simply holding fast. Holding on, saying, yes, this is what I believe. Then as we do that... We approach with confidence. We find grace that helps us as we need it. We find timely help uh, for our cry, for our need. Now, some people ask, I think it's worth spending a moment. Some people ask, can Jesus really empathize with us? Does Jesus really know what we're going through? It would seem that the answer is no, doesn't it, at first? Why would the answer seem to be no? He doesn't. Okay, because he had something going for him. He was God. He didn't have a sinful nature. That, that's an advantage, you would think. And you'd be right if you thought that. 
He also didn't have the disadvantage of the habits of sin, right? See, once you commit one sin, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times, it is vastly easier to commit it the eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth. And in fact, once you get in a habit, people call it, older theologians call it the habitus of sin, that is, becoming acclimatized to sin. It's like uh, with teenagers, not my teenagers, but other people's teenagers. Um, teenagers, for teenagers, disrespect to parents is invisible. They don't know they're doing it. It just, some teenagers, it just comes out of them all the time. They don't know how to stop they don't, because they don't know they're doing it. And some people curse just continually. They don't even know they're cursing, right? Some people cheat and manipulate people nonstop. They don't even, it's their life. It's who they are. So Jesus certainly didn't have that, and we do. So how could Jesus uh, empathize with us? Well, first of all, let's just say plainly, Jesus did not face every temptation that we do. For example, he was never tempted to run red lights. He was never tempted to steal software. He was... Uh, he was never tempted to deliberately come to a meeting three minutes late because he didn't have a watch, right? You knew that, didn't you? Uh, so there are various temptations he didn't face, but he did face every kind of temptation, every class of temptation. Temptation to find the easy way out, to look for his own advantage, to seize things, to take things that weren't his own, to maybe not tell the truth to withhold the truth at a crucial time. Uh, those things were all put to him during his life. That's, I say that because it says he was tempted in all things as we are, without the habit, without the predisposition. But there was a genuine appeal to him. When Satan said, take these stones and make them the bad bread, and he was hungry and he could do it, it was really tempting. And at Gethsemane, it was really tempting. He could really envision the benefit he would get if he did not go to the cross because he could really envision the pain of the cross. So it was a genuine act. If The only way to say it wasn't genuine would be to deny that he was really a human being. So he's really, he genuinely faced these things and endured them and did so to the end so that he might be our perfect substitute. His righteousness is given to us. And that is why the section ends with the word of mercy and grace. Because you can't end. It is definitely sub-Christian to end with fear. There's the word, but the, the, chief, the chief, the dominant emphasis is God's a tremendous love. If we come to him in faith, God will be gracious and merciful to us. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Sensing a call from God to serve in ministry? Visit covenantseminary.edu. Check out our degree programs and the many other distinctives that make Covenant Seminary a place committed to equipping you for a lifetime of ministry. That's covenantseminary.edu.